0: Kind of explain uh, how the course is, how I plan for the course to kind of unfold uh, before you. So, um, w- what we basically have uh, with with the patristic era that we are looking at, right? Patristic fathers, right? What's the word for father? Patros, right? So, that's what they get the patristic era from. So, there's basically two periods of time. Uh, that, that make up the patristic era. The first period is what I'm going to call pre-Constantine, uh, where the church is um, in the Roman Empire, of course, and it's before Constantine comes to power, and they are um, assailed with a number of different persecutions from a number of different uh, emperors of Rome. and um, So that's, that's the first uh, period of time. The second period of time is what I'm going to call post-Constantine, so, after Constantine comes to power, and if you don't, you know, if not super familiar with who Constantine is, but we're going to talk about him a lot. Um, and post Constantine to when Rome fell. So, we're talking uh, uh, Rome was invaded and sacked in 410 AD. Uh, we'll go, and then we're, we made an exception to be able to talk about Gregory, because Gregory is not technically um, in the patristic era as he's in uh, the 500s, but, you know, we won't hold that against him. Um, <clears throat> we decided to learn from him anyway. So uh, the way I want to lay out the class is I want to give you an overview of church history uh, post-apostolic, so after the apostles, <clears throat> all the way to the rise of Constantine. And then we're going to press pause on that, okay? And then we're going to rewind and go back and pick up guys who lived in this time, okay? Does that make sense? And then we're going to re-pick up our overview, right, and go from uh, the, uh, the, the conquest of Constantine um, to uh, the fall of Rome, and then we will rewind and pick up guys who lived during that time. Okay? Does that make sense? So you can think of these overviews as the skeleton and the men that we pick up as the, the flesh on the skeletons that make sense? Any questions about that? Any questions about anything I've said so far? Okay. <clears throat> so, uh, post-apostolic church to Constantine. Okay. The culture, so the first thing I want to talk about is the culture of the early church. <clears throat> um, there were... Uh, Um, Many, three different cultures that were feeding into the culture that the church sprouted in, okay? Um, The first culture was Judaism, right? Judaism. Um, And uh, this one is obvious to us, right? Um, Christ was a Jew. He was, um, he came uh, from the people of Abraham. And uh, the land and the culture were all very Judaistic, um, they, the the scriptures that they uh, taught and preached from were the Old Testament, right? And um, so they were very, and they, they of course were uh, building off of the theology of the Old Testament, right? And they weren't trying to invent a new religion, so they're very Jewish. And um, we know <clears throat> from other church history, and just history as in itself, that uh, the Jewish people were consistently persecuted uh, within the Greek Empire and also the Roman Empire. And because of this persecution, they were sent out throughout the whole empire. They spread out from Israel and they were sent out to uh, the nation. And what this did was it uh, uh, removed them from their homeland and so they began to forget Hebrew. They They began to forget Hebrew. So what did that mean that they couldn't do? They couldn't read the Old Testament, right? So what did they do? They translated the Old Testament into Greek. And what do we call that? The Septuagint, yeah. So the Septuagint, the, the rise of the Septuagint was a, a very important piece of church history that God inspired, not that he inspired the Septuagint, but that he moved this to happen, right? Or sovereignly ordained this to happen uh, for the church to be able to just spread like wildfire into the Roman Empire, right? They, they knew Greek. The scriptures were in the Greek now. They could learn them, okay? That, that, that was just critical, right? Um, <clears throat> so the second uh, culture uh, that flows into this is Hellenistic culture, Greek culture, Greek philosophy, right? Uh, Greek philosophy was... Um, a, a, a work of trying to discover the truth and using many different methods. So when you would talk to a, a Greek philosopher, you would talk to uh, someone who was interested in Greek philosophy, they would be very keen and interested in hearing what you had to say and seeing if they could piece something from what you were saying into their own personal like philosophy, right? And when they heard of uh, the Christianity, right, the, the Messiah of Christ who, uh, who fulfilled the Old Testament and who is setting up a kingdom, right, where uh, joy and peace and prosperity would come, uh, they were very interested in that, right? It, it hit them in a new way because of the spread of Hellenism uh, throughout the empire, Uh, Justo Gonzalez says this, the result in which some elements of Greek origin combined with other elements taken from conquered civilizations in various forms and degrees is known as Hellenism, right? So as the Greek Empire conquered and spread out, right, uh, the leader of the Greek Empire, his name was Alexander the Great, right? Um, He loved learning, and he did not think that the Greeks had all the answers, so, when he would come into a town, he would learn the culture, and the theology, and learn the philosophy of the town, and he would continue to incorporate this into what we call uh, Hellenism. Um, and this uh, was um, a key development for the culture of the early church. Uh, lastly, we have the Roman uh, culture, right? What did, Rome, uh, what did Rome do, right? Well, Rome brought unparalleled peace to that part of the land. And when you have peace, you have time uh, to discuss things, right? And they also brought uh, very... They, their, their infrastructure was unparalleled at the time. They had roads where you could travel easy, and there weren't, any, there weren't as many robbers who would rob you as you traveled, right? So people were able to travel throughout the empire relatively easy, easily. And so what did that mean? Christians could take the gospel wherever they went, very easily, right? So it was all these things that God, in his sovereign ordination of history, uh, began to piece together to create what can be said to be a ripe uh, soil, a fertile soil, for the church uh, to sprout and to grow. This was the world in which to, into which Christianity was born. The presence of Judaism in various parts of the world, the order of the Roman Empire, and the Hellenistic civilization provided avenues for the proclamation of the new faith, but they also provided obstacles and dangers. <clears throat> um, any thoughts on that? Questions? It's covered a whole host of history in a couple minutes there. Okay, so the the early church, as you guys have... Have you guys taken Acts yet? No, none of the New Testament uh, letters are other than Romans? Well, you get it in Romans. Uh, yeah? In the, Gospels. the Gospels, okay, great. Um, so even in the Gospels, you see uh, that... that um, and then into the, the Acts and, and the Epistles of the, the Apostles. You see that the early church was struggling, right? Majorly. In, in, in every single one of Paul's letters... He mentions and exhorts them to be unified. And you don't normally tell a unified people that they need to be unified, right? They're struggling. Why were they struggling? <clears throat> it was very culturally based, right? You had Jews and Gentiles coming together into one body. This was a, ma- this was a major uh, struggle for the early church and one that Paul and the apostles. Uh, were constantly uh, battling and applying uh, to their people. Um, The church uh, started in Jerusalem, right? Um, Many of the first converts were Jewish, of course, as we know. Um, And then after that, as you begin to read through Acts, you begin to see uh, Gentiles being converted into the church. And uh, in Acts 8, we have a detailed account of what very well could be The first Gentile convert. And who was that? You should this is where you feel proud. The Ethiopian eunuch. Absolutely. The first on record, the first Gentile convert. There could have been some Gentile converts um, at Pentecost. Uh, They're not named or talked about in detail. So we're gonna say that the first one was the Ethiopian eunuch, right? So you guys are the first breaking into of the gentile nation right uh you should feel extremely proud of that it's awesome um so uh he was the first gentile convert this was unheard of right this was a this was a world breaker for the church that, that 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 it wasn't for the jews only but also for the greeks right also for the gentiles that paul is teaching in romans and in galatians right and um After that we see Acts 10 where Peter goes to the Roman centurion Cornelius and then the the Gentiles just begin to flood into the church like crazy and the church uh, just begins to take off and Paul goes on a missionary journey, several missionary journeys and many people are being converted and churches are popping up all over the empire and it is just an absolutely incredible time. And you have normal people who have become Christians who work jobs where they travel a lot and they take their Christianity from place to place and then we just start, we don't even know how some of these, some of these churches have sprouted up. They just begin to sprout up all over the place. It's incredible. Um, a book that talks about that is Mission in the Early Church, which is on the bottom of this stack right here. And he talks about how the early church spread the gospel and it is It's an excellent book. Okay, Um, so it spread like wildfire, and uh, it was very inviting to the Hellenized environment that they could take on Christ without uh, submitting to the Jewish law, okay? Um, Appreciating the Jewish law, but not submitting themselves to it. Um, And what, what came up as a need for the church because of all of these converts that were flooding into the church was a need to be able to teach these converts... Before they took on baptism, so they would know what they were getting into. And this is what we call the catechumenate, okay? Or the catechumens, right? You guys have a new membership class. Michael was talking about that, right? If you want to become a member, you take interviews and you t- you take classes, right? At our church, we have um, a membership class as well, where they come in and they meet the pastor and they uh, they learn the things of the church and uh, they go through that. It's about six months, and then they uh, after they complete that and they pass all um, uh, the 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 interviews and everything like that, they are then baptized. But they have this period of pre-testing, uh, so. Uh that they, they, they go through so we can be sure that they know what they're getting into. And that's what the early church had. And I'm going to write it so that you can, uh, so that you can see what, how it's spelled. It's called the cat. eight. The catechumenate. Okay? And someone who would be in that would be called a catechumen. Okay? A catechumen. A student. A learner. Does that make sense? I'm sorry about my handwriting. It's not very good. I, uh, I was teaching a class at our church uh, just a few weeks ago on Romans, and um, my my whiteboard writings were on the other side of the whiteboard, and my son Amaris, my second-born, he, he uh, was looking at the board, and he said, this must be some sort of math. I said, you're grounded. No, I'm just joking. No. Um, so the catechumenate, um, and uh, this uh, brought into the church gathering a somewhat of a division, okay? So there'd be two parts to the church service, okay? The first part of the church service would be preaching, singing, praying, fellowship, okay? And then the catechumens and the visitors would be dismissed from the service so that the body could partake of the uh, Eucharist and then the love feast, so they wanted people to become members, be baptized uh, before they entered into the body, right? Which makes sense with how we think about theology. <clears throat> okay. Um, and what you need to know is about this time in, in, in the early church, and, and this is basically Acts, is uh, there were three main hubs for the early church, okay? Big churches uh, sprouting up. The first one, of course, was Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay. Two Antioch. Okay. And three. Anybody know? Alexandria. Main hub which, of course, is in North Africa. So there you go. You have another proud moment here. Alexandria. It's incredible. So those three places uh, facilitated and uh, uh, facilitated, the. the, they were the the main tap roots of the early church tree. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Okay, so it it would be impossible uh, to talk about the early church and how it grew and... The environment of the early church, uh, without mentioning persecution. Okay, so just like Rome and Greece, Greece and uh, uh, Judaism uh, provided benefits to the church spreading. They also were obstacles, right? They also had. They also brought problems for the early church to spread, and that is what we call persecution. Um, and it's undeniable uh, to talk about the fact that it was an intense pers- persecution. Um, uh, we know uh, that uh, we can be thankful to God for the blood of the faithfulness of the martyrs, um, as He says in Romans or not Re- uh, Revelation, right? and they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. He's speaking about how the early church was growing; they they grew by not loving their lives unto death. The church became alive through the death of the martyrs. That's how it grew. Um, <clears throat> the first place we see persecution popping up is, under the, is by the Jews. The Jude, under Judaism, right? This is a lot of acts. And what do Paul and the apostles, what do they tend to do when they're being persecuted by the Jews? They seek, count, they seek shelter from who? The Romans usually, right? Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. They constantly are trying to have Rome protect them from the Jews. Uh, but then eventually what happens with, with the Romans? They turn and begin to persecute the Christians. So the Christians were experiencing persecution from the Judaism, from the Jews and then also from the, for the Romans. <clears throat> the reason they are receiving persecution from the Jews um, was because they were blaspheming, right? They killed Christ. These people are Christians. They are walking in the same path as Christ. They are blaspheming God by saying that this person that we killed was God, so we need to persecute them. Um, and there's also a very interesting uh, social dynamic um, that, that, uh, that made persecution by the Jews seem more uh, likely. right? Um, so um, the way the Roman culture was set up was that you could worship your God, whoever your God was, you could worship your God. But you had to what? You had to honor the emperor. You had to worship the emperor as well. This was a problem for the Jews, right? Lord your God is one. You shall have no other gods before me, right? No other gods at all. So the Jews underwent significant persecution at the hands of the Romans until the Romans finally said, you know what? Um, We're tired of killing these Jews. It just is too difficult. So let's just let them worship Yahweh and govern themselves by themselves. We don't need to speak into it. As long as they are peaceful, we will let them not offer sacrifices to Caesar. Okay? That's what happened. Stubbornness pays off. So imagine now that you're a young Christian and you're coming out of Judaism. And there would be a temptation, which is what we see in the book of Galatians, to worship Jesus and look Jewish, right? Take circumcision, receive the protection of the empire, and worship Jesus. And thanks to God, men like Paul said, you cannot do that, you cannot adulterate the scriptures. We need to believe in Christ, come what may. And so the Christians let go of the protection that the Romans were giving to the Jews so that they would be able to be faithful to the gospel, which requires nothing but faith for its entrance. Does that make sense? So you can see how the temptation to Judaize would have been very easy. So when we read these stories of people failing, right, we tend to be like, how could they have made such a mistake? Right? Well, we would make the same mistakes. <clears throat> okay. Um, so let's talk about persecution under, the, under, under Rome, okay? Um, I kind of talked about that already. The first emperor that, that began to persecute the Jew, or the, the Christians was a man named Nero, okay? Nero. And this was from the, now, um, don't, when we are studying church history, you don't, if you would like to, you can write down names, you can write down dates, okay, but what would be better is if, if you wanted them, I could send you all my notes, okay, so I want you to not get bogged down in dates and in names, I want you to hear the stories, okay, the narratives, Okay, so I'm going to write these things, but if you want to take notes, I would like you to take notes of significant stories that you appreciate, okay? So so don't, I don't want to see your notes just being name, date, name, date, name, date. Don't worry about that, okay? I'm just trying to give you context for where this is happening and how this all played out, okay? So Nero, um, from 54 to 68, so very early, was the first emperor who began to pursue Christians. Um, His persecution was very localized to Rome. I'm sorry, I have one thing to hand out. One thing that I have found very helpful uh, in my study of church history is to have a map. So take one and pass it down. This is a map of the early Roman Empire where the church uh, uh, sprouted. Uh, It's thanks to this book right here, which has the map at the beginning, uh, where where I pulled it from. Um, you have it uh, here for your library. Uh, this is the early uh, Roman Empire where we see... Um, so when you say, "Oh, well, where where is Milan? Right? Well, you can see it on the map. And, and as we reference these cities, you can, uh, in your mind, uh, understand where they're at. So uh, Nero was emperor of Rome, of course. He began uh, to persecute the Christians um, in Rome. And uh, the reason why he did um, was likely because he needed to... Uh, he was not very well liked by his people because of some of the decisions that he made. So in some ways, he needed uh, to develop a common enemy for all of them to hate, right? So he decided uh, to hate the Christians and try to unite the Roman people against the Christians, okay? So um, he, uh, he began uh, very much like any, any sort of emperor. And um, soon, sur- rumors began to circulate that he was going crazy, okay? His, his mental, he was having a mental breakdown. And on June 18th, 64 A.D., the fire of Rome broke out. Okay? And luckily, luckily, the good, the good emperor C, uh, Nero was on the scene to help put the fire out. And what was very curious about the fire Uh, was that after it was put out multiple times, it restarted a few days later. And what was also very curious about the fire was that there were major sections of Christian houses and Christian uh, or in Jewish houses that were not burned. So what did Nero do? The Christians have started this fire. He blamed the Christians for the fire. And this united the people of Rome against the Christians, and it gave Nero a reason to persecute the Christians. And his persecution of the Christians was very intense and very uh, difficult. Um, Before killing the Christians, uh, Nero used them to amuse people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illuminate. Nero opened his own gardens for these shows, and in the circus he, had, he himself became a spectacle, for he mingled with the people dressed as a charioteer, or he rode around in his chariot. All of this aroused the mercy of the people, even against these culprits, who deserved an exemplary punishment, for it was clear that they were not being destroyed for the common good, but rather to satisfy the cruelty of one person." And it's under the persecution of Nero that uh, that Paul and Peter were likely killed. Okay, um, and it was uh, contained to Rome, of course, not the empire, but the city. And um, in 68, a rebellion broke out, and uh, Nero was killed in the rebellion. So the church uh, the church uh, went through a time of peace after that. <clears throat> the next emperor that we see. Uh, 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 persecuting the Christians is a man named Domitian. Domitian. And he was from 81 to 96. And this as well was localized to the city of Rome. Um, At first he paid little attention to the Christians um, and what was a motivating factor for a lot of emperors uh, in persecuting the Christians was uh, they saw the spread of Christianity, and they loved Roman pagan culture, and they saw Christianity overtaking Roman pagan culture, uh, the gods and the, the, the pantheon and all that stuff, and they said, uh, no, 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 Roman is pagan. Rome is pagan, so we will kill these Christians so that we can keep the pagan culture, alive, right? So he wanted to return Rome uh, to its pagan roots, so he began uh, to kill Christians, and he also persecuted Jews. Um, he instituted a temple. Uh, he said, no longer will you pay your tithe to the temple, you'll pay it to Rome, right? Which is, you understand, Jewish Hebrew, the, the Jewish scriptures, uh, they were not going to do that, right? So they were persecuted, killed, um, and uh, and it was under Domitian that the Christians were accused of a curious uh, of a curious position. Okay, they were accused of. You're going to think this is funny. Atheism. What is atheism? Who's an atheist? Hmm. Yeah, Stephen Hawking. What does he believe? He believes that there is no God. Right? So The Christians were atheists, they said. Yeah. And, and of course they were saying that they don't believe in the gods. Right? They, wouldn't, they wouldn't talk about the, the, the gods, the temples, all those things. So they said, these Christians are atheists. They don't believe in the gods. Right? So the dem- began to spread that rumor. <coughs> and, uh, and because of that, uh, the Christians were persecuted uh, significantly. It's in Revelation 17.6 where John sees the vision of, of someone persecuting the church, he says this, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. It's very likely that John, depending on your eschatological persuasion, I know you're having eschatology in a few, uh, few weeks with Josh, um, it's likely that John was seeing a vision um, of Domitian, uh, the one persecuting the church at the time. Um... He had a lust for power and was seen uh, as a threat to a lot of people in Rome, and his enemies overtook him uh, and killed him in uh, 96. And uh, the Christians experienced a time of peace after that. Yeah, somewhat. Yeah, somewhat. Uh, not the Jews. The Jews weren't always like the Jews under Nero weren't persecuted as much. Um, uh, it was mostly the Christians, uh, but it was with Domitian that they that he persecuted them uh, mainly because he wanted their money. He, they were paying taxes to the temple. And he wanted them to pay it to Rome, right? And they said, we're not going to do that. Then he killed them. So, um, but, but they were seen as outsiders for sure. Right. So one of the things that a lot, a lot of the early apologists of the church, like Justin Martyr, um, are going to argue is that we are not Jewish. And a lot of the Jews were arguing that they are not Jewish either, right? Um, Justin ha- has a writing um, called On- A Dialogue with Trifo, who's a Jewish rabbi. And in that writing, it's a conversation between him and this man named Trifo, and uh, he shows that Jews and Christians are not the same because the, even though they, they both affirm the Old Testament, um, they do not see Jesus. They, they do not see Jesus as the Messiah. That's where they depart. These are localized to Rome. Okay, we hadn't seen a empire wide persecution yet until um, we see Emperor Trajan. Okay, Trajan. Okay. And Emperor Trajan uh, changed how Christians were persecuted. Um, he was from 98 to 117. And what happened with Trajan was he had a, uh, a under ruler, right, uh, who his name was uh, Pliny. Pliny. And Pliny was a ruler in the Roman Empire, and he noticed uh, the rise of Christians and, and more and more Christians being converted out of paganism. And uh, uh, he was a ruler in Bithynia. And uh, he, he said, you know, I don't know if this is good for the Roman Empire for all of these people to be uh, converting from paganism to Christianity, uh, so we need uh, to figure out what to do with these Christians, right? So what he began to do is he began to bring them before, uh, when they would be accused of being a Christian, he would bring them uh, before uh, himself and he would ask them, Are you a Christian? <clears throat> and they would say, Yes. And then he would say, um, Okay, I want you uh, to do something. Okay? I want you uh, to pray to the gods. And I want you to burn incense before the image of the emperor. And I want you to curse Christ. Okay? So pray to the gods, worship the the emperor, and curse Christ. And the Christians said, no, we can't do that. And so then he said, I will kill you if you do not do that. And they said, you have to do what you have to do, but we will not do that. And so he began killing Christians. And so then he began to think, is it a good thing for Rome to be killing people, not for a crime, but for simply being called a Christian? So he wrote a letter to Trajan. Okay? This is called the correspondence between Pliny and Trajan. Okay? And he said, this is what I've been doing as a ruler, but I want to know if you think this is a good idea. And Trajan made the edict of Trajan, which was, if someone is accused of being a Christian, you should do this but do not seek out the Christians. Do not spend government resources seeking out the Christians. Okay? That's the Edict of Trajan. But what this did was this gave all of the rulers, like Pliny, all throughout the Empire a law by which they were able to begin persecuting Christians. Okay? So, um, what it required of course was an accusation. Someone in the town would have to accuse you of being a Christian, and then you would be brought before the magistrate, and they would ask you, are you a Christian, and then if you refused to do the things that they told you to do, you would then be killed as a Christian. Does that make sense? So it's a little bit different than the way Nero and Domitian persecuted the Christians, Uh, but this set a precedent for the persecution to go empire-wide, okay? Does that make sense? So this is where we start to see the persecutions popping up all over the empire, and, of course, it wasn't all at once. There'd be a, a rising up here. There'd be a rising up here. You know, it would kind of go back and forth here and there. And um, it gave some significant power to your pagan neighbors uh, to accuse you of being Christian. So this is where, um, you know, it would be very hard to witness, right? Where you, this is really where the catechumen came in uh, because they wanted to make sure that there wasn't someone trying to infiltrate the church to begin accusing people. Uh, so they began testing them, Right. Um, okay. And it's under Trajan's policy that Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna were, uh, were martyred. Um, Ignatius may have appeared before Trajan himself. Uh, we're not sure about that. Um, <clears throat> but uh, the, the Edict of Trajan... Um, was was Roman law for a long time. Was Roman law for a long time. <coughs> Any questions about that? A little bit different. Okay. The next guy is a man named Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius. 161 to 180. <coughs> Marcus... Um, was a brilliant mind, okay? He was well-versed in Greek uh, philosophy, and he desired for the Roman Empire uh, to return to its pagan roots. And he was... um, Did anybody need that? He was um, also very uh, um, angry with the Christians and with their obstinance to his rule, okay? Okay? so he, uh, he thought the Christians were very obstinate people. He persecuted them under the Edict of Trajan. Um, there's a very f- uh, famous martyrdom uh, called the Martyrdom of Felicitas and her seven sons where they come before Marcus, and um, uh, Felicitas says to, to them that they will not offer idols, offer sacrifices to the idols. And she says this, while I live, I shall defeat you, and if you kill me in my death, I shall defeat you all the more. Isn't that crazy? It's awesome. And uh, her and her seven sons were put to death. And there was another Christian under uh, Marcus Aurelius. His name was Sanctus. And uh, when he was tortured, simply answered, I am a Christian. The more he was tortured, the more he persisted in saying nothing but these words, I am a Christian, I am a Christian, I am a Christian. Marcus Aurelius said the Christian people are an obstinate people. And they refused to, to break from their ways and receive paganism. And he was right. He was right. The Christian people are to be people, pastors, like you and me and Josh. We as Christians are to be people who are like a man who finds a treasure buried in a field. What does he do? He obstinately sells everything he has so he can what? Buy the field. He clings to the field. Where are we to go? For You hold the power over death. You are the Son of God, Peter says. Are we like these Christians would a a ruler say of us. They hold their faith obstinately, strongly. We need to be. We need to be. Okay, after Marcus Aurelius, we have an emperor rise. His name is Septimus Severus. And we're not sure exactly what his rule was, but it was the third century. So 200-something. Um, and uh, he, he persecuted Christians under the Edict of Trajan as well. <coughs> um, and he, uh, he also added to uh, the policy to persecute Christians. Um, and uh, uh, what he wanted to do was he, uh, he made an edict, a proposition that... Um, well, I'll just read it to you. He proposed uh, a plan to bring all his subjects together under the worship of Sol, Invictus, the unconquered sun. And to subsume under that worship all the various religions and philosophies then current. All gods were to be accepted as long as one acknowledged the sun that reigned above all. And this edict was given in 202. And this edict, of course, was met with resistance by the Jews and Christians alike. And persecution uh, broke out because of it. And it's where we see people like uh, Irenaeus, Persecuted and killed under this edict, and also um, two women and their uh, friends, uh, named Perpetua and Felicitas, were murdered, uh, were persecuted, and martyred, um, martyred under this edict. Um, and uh, despite the persecution, and we're going to actually look at both of those uh, people, uh, Irenaeus and Perpetua and Felicitas, and it was uh, we'll see this very fact. That it was under this intense persecution by the Roman Empire that the church began to grow rapidly. It's pretty incredible. And it was of the uh, it was of the persecution of uh, Septimus Severus that Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the you guys know the quote seed, seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, Septimus dies. And things uh, quiet down for the Christians. Um, that is until the next em- emperor comes uh, who persecutes them, and his name is Decius. So I should make a note that in between all these emperors, there are other emperors. Okay? This is not a running line, of course. Uh, but those emperors were not as adamant in their persecution of the Christians, okay? if they persecuted them at all. Decius, 249 to 251. Didn't last long. Uh, Similar to Septimus Severus, Decius was a Roman of the old order. He wanted them to return to their roots in an effort to address a number of the problems facing the empire. The Jews and the Christians stood as obstacles to this, and they were persecuted. Um, He he saw the failure of Septimus Severus uh, that when, when Septimus killed the Christians, the church grew. So Decius decided to do something different. He was not going to kill the Christians. He wanted them to apostatize. He wanted them to leave the faith. So he would torture them. And he imposed a rule that all people were to um, uh, uh, were to offer a sacrifice to the idols and if you would not do that you would be tortured and then you would be released and if you did do it you would receive a certificate that says i offered an idol to the i offered a sacrifice to the idols and then you would be good okay to live in the roman empire Well, this had a different effect upon the church, okay? There were many who said that we will not offer the sacrifice, and so they were tortured. And these people were then referred to not as martyrs, because they were not killed, they were referred to as confessors. Confessors. Do they confess the faith in in the face of persecution, face of torture, and they did not yield? Okay? That was one group of Christians. There's another group of Christians who will be known as known as the lapsed. The lapsed. And what these people did, they did a number of different things. There were some who, who were afraid to face torture. And, and they, they offered the sacrifice. Now, you could see how you could rationalize that. Right? I'll just burn this thing. I don't mean it. I believe in Jesus. Right? And we'll move on from this. Okay? There were some who did that. Then there were some who said, you know what? What? if I were to somehow obtain a certificate, I would not be tortured. So they would buy them from somebody who would sell them to to them, and they would hide behind their certificate, worshiping Christ and hiding behind their certificate. So both of those categories were called the lapsed. They did not, when the time came, they did not profess the faith in the face of persecution. Okay. So just keep that in your mind, because we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, Well, we're going to talk about that now, actually. So this actually uh, created what is known to be uh, one of the first schisms in the church. You guys know what that word means, schism? It's like a breaking, right? A cracking, right? The church was disagreeing on what to do about this problem, okay? Okay. Because when Decius would die and peace would come back to the church, what do you think the lapsed would do? To coming back to church, right? So, you can see the problem, right? Imagine you're a pastor in that moment, someone who offered a sacrifice to the, uh, to the, uh, to the gods and the 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 threat of persecution is over and you have a room full of confessors who are bearing on their body the marks of the torture and they you have this person who says i repent of my actions and i want to come back into the church could they be telling the truth yeah absolutely could they be lying yeah. <laughs> you see the difficulty, right? You see the difficulty. We, we have the same difficulty um, when, uh, when we practice church discipline on somebody who is in, in unrepentant sin. And when they say they want to come back to the church, we try to figure out what the most practical uh, way to discern their repentance is. And it's never easy. It's never easy. So this, were, this was a situation where pastors... We're trying to figure out how to deal with this problem. And there were people who disagreed greatly. The confessors, what do you think the confessors thought? What, should, what do you think the confessors thought that they should do with the lapsed? Huh? Get rid of them. No. The confessor says that they should, they should be brought back. They should be brought back. Amen. Grace. The confessor says, bring them back. But, not all the confessors thought that. There were some bishops who thought that the lapsed should not be brought back in the church. Okay? This controversy centered around a bishop named Cyprian. Cyprian. Cyprian of Carthage. And persecution broke out in Carthage and Cyprian at the behest of his congregation left Carthage and came back when the persecution died down. Now, before we judge Cyprian too harshly, you have to know that he later suffered martyrdom. So it's my belief that his intentions for leaving Carthage were, at that time, were good. But there's a lot of debate on that, okay? Uh, But but he did suffer a martyr's death later in his life. Um, So he left the church, and they were trying to figure out what to do with these laps. When he came back, was he bishop again? Or was he not? Was there somebody else? This is a big question, okay? And, uh, and and eventually, the bishops of the church adopted this policy, okay? But this policy would not be the end-all, fix-all, and this schism would, would would leave its mark on the church, all the way through, uh, to the to the end of the, to the fall of the Roman Empire. And we'll talk more about the schism uh, as we get to Constantine, uh, but this was the this was the policy that the bishops of the church adopted. Um, those who persecuted certificates and didn't offer, would be readmitted to the church upon repentance. Those who offered the sacrifice would only be readmitted into the church on their deathbed. And those who did not seek to be readmitted to the church, they would be readmitted to the church either upon their deathbed or when persecution would break out again. So if they still wanted to be a part of the church while Christians were being killed, they would would have the opportunity to be readmitted. Those who did not, at that time, seek to be readmitted to the church would never be readmitted. This was the policy that they they implemented. Not what the confessors said, right? Um, I think it's Ambrose. Uh, in in uh, in the late fourth century, who wrote a book on? We're going to look at it. Who wrote a book on repentance? And his policy was, who are we to judge the sin of others? If they are repentant, they should be brought back. So eventually, the church uh, adopted the policy of the confessors, but it wasn't at, it wasn't at first. <clears throat> Any thoughts or questions on that? (coughs) Okay. The last emperor we're going to look at is a man named Diocletian. Diocletian. And this is where we see the most uh, uh, severe and Terrible persecution of the Christians uh, that has come. So he ministered, or he was emperor from 284 to 305. And Diocletian also uh, desired uh, the church, or the Rome to, Rome to prosper, okay? So Diocletian decided to do something a little bit different with his, with his rule, he said, you know what? This job as Roman emperor is much too large for one person. Okay, So I am going to institute uh, as a policy to, to, to appoint other men to help rule the empire. Okay, So he said, we're going to have an emperor of the west and an emperor of the east. And under both of these emperors, we're going to have a lesser ruler. Okay? So now there were going to be four men who were in charge of the emperor of the empire. Okay, so you had Diocletian, who appointed a man named Galerius, Galerius, to be under him, Galerius, and then they appointed um, uh, a man named Constantius Chlorus, who was the father of Constantine. And uh, he would rule under a man named Maximian. So Maximian would rule uh, as the other half of the empire, and they would have these men under them. And this was a good idea. This, this uh, progressed the Roman Empire. This was a good idea. And uh, at first, Christians were, th- were thriving under this law because uh, if you lived under the rule of one of the men who were not so uh, ardent against Christianity, you were at peace, right? Right? Um, the the, the empire was not at the whims of a madman anymore. It was, the power was spread out, right? Until Galerius became lustful for power, okay? And uh, Galerius, uh, if you read um, a church historian, one of the first church historians we have, his name is Eusebius, Eusebius of Caesarea. He talks about Galerius in very uh, bad terms, right? Galerius hated Christians, right? And uh, he got into the ear of Diocletian, because Galerius was under Diocletian. He got into the ear of Diocletian, and he said, you know what? We should, we should start persecuting these Christians. Okay? And um, <clears throat> where it started was he said that the Christians should be kicked out of the army because they, uh, they, are, not, they are not fighting for the Roman gods. So they should be kicked out of the army. And this was very difficult for the, for the army officials because they were having to, to send away a lot of their soldiers, okay? So you can see how they were frustrated with that. So they took it upon themselves to tell the Roman soldiers, hey, you recant or we'll kill you, the Roman Christian soldiers. You recant or we'll kill you. And there were a lot of Christians who would not recant and were killed um, at the hands of their their uh, army officials, um, and then Galerius just continued to to progress this uh, this persecution against Christians, and um, and eventually um, he issued orders that uh, Christ- that all Christians from places of government and influence of power should be uh, should be expelled, and that no Christians could teach. Uh, philosophy or teaching the schools anymore and then um, he uh, he began uh, to uh, have the Christians and property destroyed and their books stolen and their churches destroyed and then uh, there were more fires that broke out uh, near the Emperor's home and it's interesting who who may have been starting those fires right Uh, But what this did to Diocletian was it made him very paranoid that, that the Christians were trying to kill him. So he said, Galerius, you're right. We should kill these Christians. So Diocletian unleashed, thus was unleashed, the most cruel of all persecutions that the ancient church had to endure. There were many who apostatized, right, Many who left the church, uh, who lapsed. Many were tortured and killed. Um, In 305, uh, Diocletian grew ill, and Galerius came to him and said, you've served Rome for a very long time. You are a great emperor. You are now ill and tired. You should step down. Galerius was very kind, right? No, Galerius wanted to be what? He wanted to be top dog, right? He wanted to be the emperor. So Diocletian steps down and Galerius takes his position, and uh, uh, they keep the four-man structure, right? Um, and uh, they appoint, um, but but for the two under uh, the two under the emperors, Galerius appointed two men who were who. There's a phrase in America called "yes men." You ever heard that phrase? What do they, what do yes men say? Yes, sir. Oh, that's a great idea, sir. That's a fantastic idea. So he appointed two men like that under the two emperors who would listen to Galerius. So that while the power was still con- not consolidated, it, was, it actually was consolidated under Galerius. And this was not a popular decision by the army. The army did not like this decision because they had a man that they liked who, who was an army man, who was a, a great a general who had brought them through many different uh, victories and this man's name was Constantine. And they wanted Constantine to be emperor. And Constantius Chlorus, Constantine's dad, dies. And what does the army do? He is our Caesar. He is our ruler. We will follow him and no one else. So Constantine takes power. Okay? So now you see that there's a problem brewing for Galerius. And uh, Galerius begins to make some very stupid political decisions and and begins to to spread himself out and begins to become paranoid and, and starts to see his power slipping from him. And what does Constantine do? He just bides his time. Just continues to wait until the moment where he can take power. Okay? And um, Galerius uh, becomes very sick and, uh, and, and, and in an unprecedented move uh, decides that the persecution of Christians should stop. And he says that we shall no longer pursue Christians, but they are ordered to pray to their god, for the safety and the security of the empire. It's interesting, right? Um, It was a desperate move. He was uh, probably growing in unpopularity. He needed some sort of uh, last-ditch effort to, to retain hold of the power, and so he does this. Five days later, Galerius dies of the sickness, they think. And that is when um, the empire then is divided into four, uh, uh, four, empi- four emperors retake the power, okay? And I, um, I wrote this down in my other notes. Um, uh, so you have uh, Constantine who takes power in the far west. So if you look at your map, the far west, right? Then you have, um, uh, uh, okay, so you have Constantine in the far west, You have Max Tentius in the Middle West. He was one of the under rulers with Galerius. You have Licinius in the Middle East of the empire. And then you have Maximinus in the Far East. Don't worry about these names. They're not very important. Okay? But just know that it was divided into four men like this. And uh, Max Tentius was the scapegoat. He was the one that followed Galerius and brought us into this mess. He was the one who was the problem of Rome, so Constantine decided it's time to invade Maxentius. Okay, this is where he would start his move into taking power of the empire. Okay, um, so uh, you can see on your map he began to uh, move into. Uh, they, he began to move east, right from the far west. He began to move east, and uh, he came to uh, Milvian, the bridge of Milvian. And um, this is where uh, it's famously recounted that Constantine had a vision. And the vision was that he would have great success in this victory, in this battle against Maxentius, though his soldiers were outnumbered two to one. He would have great success if he put the Cairo on the shields of his soldiers, and on the uniforms of his soldiers. And what does Cairo look like? It's, it's Greek letters, right? Kai. ro What do you think Cairo stand stand, stand, stood for? <clears throat> yeah, Christians. So what did he do? He did it. And what happened? Though he was outnumbered two to one, he had victory. And conquered Maxentinius. Maxentinius abdicated his position. And Constantine took great power over half of the empire. Right? So you had Constantine in the west empire. And then you had uh, Licinius. And Maximinius in the east. So Constantine was uh, was was consolidating his power as empire, as the emperor. Um, and he reached an agreement with Licinius, called the Edict of Milan in three thirteen. And what did this edict say? Christians are no longer to be persecuted. he attributed the victory of the Milvian Bridge to God, Christian, the Christian God, giving him victory. So this opened up Constantine to the truth of Christianity. And he made the Edict of Milan with Licinius that throughout the whole empire, Christians were no longer to be persecuted. And this was a new age of the church, This was a drastic change that would affect the church in many ways. And it is said that even we still live feeling the effects of the age of Constantine. And it's true. Um, Constantine is a very controversial figure. There are a lot of good writers who say that he was not a true Christian there are even more, or not, maybe not more, but a lot more, a lot others who say that he was. And though he had his faults, here we see the conversion of the emperor. Would you imagine the, the change that that took place? So we're going to talk more about Constantine and his, uh, his rise to power and his influence and what he did in the empire um, in the next when we talk, when we go through the skeleton again, um, so but we'll leave it at that. Any thoughts or questions on Constantine or any of this, any of the emperors that persecuted the church? Here we're having, we're leaving, we're leaving the time of persecution, and we're entering a brand new time in the church. Yeah. yeah so in accepting them back, were they were they going against the saying of Oh, is it in First Timothy? Paul says that about Christ. If we deny him in front of men, he will deny us. Um, uh, they would stress the power of God's forgiveness over the power of our sin. They would say that we spent our whole lives denying Christ, and then when we believed in Him, we still in some ways deny Christ. Um, but yeah, there's a reason why this split the church uh, is because it's a very difficult decision. Uh, Truth, and and honestly, the re, the the truth of it probably lies somewhere in the middle, right? <clears throat> there were probably some lapsed, who should not have been brought back in, and there were probably some who were lapsed who truly were confessing and regenerating or uh, repenting of their sin, who should have been brought back in. Um, and as you pastor and you have these, you will have these uh, these types of things come up, where where the church will discipline somebody and they will what we hope, repent, uh, or they will say they repent, and then you have to go into your leadership and try to determine if, if they should be brought back or not. Um, so yeah, so it's, I guess it's kind of a non-answer, but it's, uh, it's very difficult. And, uh, and I think you just have to look for fruit of repentance. What was probably helpful was, what was probably more helpful was some sort of policy that, that, uh, that was more open-ended for, for case-by-case situations uh, to be to be determined if repentance was true. Because if someone's not truly repenting, and they're not truly changing their life away from the sin that they were committing, they should not be brought back into the church until, Paul says, uh, their flesh is destroyed by Satan in 1 Corinthians. So, for the sake of the church and for the sake of them. Okay, we're going to take um, a short break. The question that we're going to ask when we come back is... How did the church survive the torrent of persecution? I mean, think about that. Look, about, look at these names. How did they possibly can stay unified and multiply? And how did they face their, their enemies? And how did they emerge victorious uh, um, in spite of the many deaths that we saw? What was, what was church like In the time of persecution, that's what we're going to look at when you come back.